This, uh, this story that Jesus tells in our gospel lesson this morning, the uh, familiar story of the Good Samaritan, or Good Neighbor Sam, as it's sometimes called, was prompted by two questions that were asked of Jesus one day. The first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, can only be answered in one way. Love God, love neighbor. Perfectly. In other words, keep the entirety of God's law. Perfectly. Well, easier said than done. Then, as often happens when these kinds of spiritual conversations arise, the, uh, the legal expert who asks the question asks a second question. He wants to, to talk about this matter of loving neighbor, discuss it further, argue the merits of his own theological position, maybe. He figures the longer, the longer he talks, the longer he sits around... Uh, uh, rationalizing and theorizing, then the less he'll have to do. The more he argues, the more concessions he might be able to get from Jesus about the limits of loving neighbor. And the more he thus justifies his own charitable inactivity, the better he feels. And so he asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus, who really is it that I must love? And to answer that question, Jesus tells the well-known story. You know, when it gets down to it, we've all got different ideas of who my neighbor is. Geography often determines the answer. Only those who live around us are our neighbors. Others who live elsewhere, that's the responsibility of other people. And so, uh, genocide in Africa, war in the Ukraine, racial hatred and gun violence in large city America, even floods and tornadoes in nearby Minnesota communities quickly become yesterday's news. Out of sight, out of mind. Somebody else will lend a hand. Somebody else will give. Somebody else will pray. Then again, it's also true that we let things like social status and popularity, money, friendships determine the answer. Neighbors are those who are easy to love, easy to be neighbor to. Yeah, you may have noticed that when we are the ones who are in trouble or are in need, then suddenly we think that everyone has, who has more than we do is our neighbor and uh, is obliged to help. In Jesus' story, look at it from the perspective of this man left for dead on the side of the road. Of course he would think that, that anybody who passes by should be his neighbor who would lend a hand. If you've ever had car trouble and been stranded on the side of the road, you know the feelings of frustration and uh, even bitterness, how unneighborly people who just drive by appear to be. You're the victim here. I mean, the one 
who fell among robbers. Earlier this summer, I was tackling a home improvement project that required some carpenter tools and uh, the skills to use them. Suddenly, anybody with that kind of equipment and ability became my neighbor. Fortunately, I have a son-in-law who is that kind of neighbor and who helped me out. But you know, when you're on the receiving end of help, everyone is your neighbor. But looking at it from the other side, when you are on the, the giving side of help, how easy it is to see things differently, to think, well, other people's uh, troubles, that's their own problem. I've got my own life to take care of, my own family to provide for, my own, my own job to protect. And it's then, when I'm asked to be a neighbor, that I'll find excuses. You know, how hard I've had it, or how nobody really helped me how much I've already done for others, how I can't do it all, how those folks are going to have to learn to help themselves. Isn't that how we think when we ask, who is my neighbor that I must love? Upon seeing the man beaten and left for dead, the priest and the Levite maybe uh, recreated all those kinds of good reasons in their minds for not stopping to help. Who is my neighbor? This this stranger whom I don't even know, he might just be a, a drunken bum or a, a thief himself who with the rest of his partners who are hiding in the weeds are just going to jump up and rob me. Oh, you know, if it was just me, I'd sacrifice my life for him. But I've got to think of my family, my job, my security. Those are my real neighbors. Passing by on the other side must have caused these religious men a, a twinge of guilt. But the saving thought presented itself at just the right time and got them off the hook. Who, after all, is my neighbor? Two months ago, the congregations of our Minnesota North District, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, gathered in convention in uh, in Brainerd, every three years they do this. And once again, many important matters were discussed, decided. After all, our church is firmly committed to the truth of God's word. We know what needs to be taught and believed. We even know what needs to be done. Where we as a church, though, and as individuals often fall short, is when it comes time to do. Like the legal expert who came to Jesus, we find it easy to talk about our faith in convention halls and in churches in here. But then we uh, find it not so easy to put it into practice out there in the world. We'll maybe pass lofty resolutions about our concern for human needs, about the life of the unborn, about the dangers of secular society, the need to get the gospel out, the need for money and other resources to accomplish these things. If you've ever been to a convention, you know how much talking goes on. But what good is all the talk if we don't finally, in the words of Jesus, do this? As long as you can talk and discuss and reason, 
as good and necessary as those things are, you don't have the time to do. Who indeed is my, my neighbor, we argue, home or missions? As if it's one or the other. And we talk and debate, and consequently the work of neither one gets done. At our jobs, we might ask, who is my neighbor, the boss or the janitor? And we make our selection on the basis of who best can be a neighbor to us. Who is a neighbor, I ask, looking out there in an attempt to get off the hook? And Jesus turns it right on its head, pointing me back to the Good Samaritan and putting the focus squarely back here, answers with, are you a neighbor? Not who is my neighbor, but to whom are you a neighbor? It's not really necessary to uh, describe the moment when the Samaritan came on that ugly scene, when the, the wounded man had maybe given up all hope. No need to describe the compassion that moved him to carry out his work, his, his courage at facing potential robbers himself, or what other Jews might think or do to him, a despised Samaritan, when he comes walking into town with a, a badly beat-up Jew on his donkey. His compassion wasn't a momentary feeling and a, and a quick fix. It required an ongoing sacrifice. And all of this, in spite of the fact that he was a foreigner who wasn't so deeply indoctrinated into this, this Jewish law of love that the priest and the, the Levite had, and who maybe had a very deficient theory of loving neighbor. There's no need to go into all of this, you see, because the point of this story is that you and I, along with this legal expert, we need to identify our, him, ourselves with the priest and the Levite. And when we do that, we need to repent. In telling this story, Jesus would have us take off the blinders that keep us from seeing neighbors who are outside our comfort zone. He wants to teach us simply to get busy and to do something, referring to the Samaritan, God's idea of a good neighbor. Jesus says, go and do likewise. This story, though, does much more than teach a nice moral lesson. Something like, be a good neighbor, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's so much more than that, you see, because the teller of this story includes himself in it. Oh yeah, Jesus makes a cameo appearance. In the Gospels, you see, the only time this word for compassion or pity is used is when it refers to 
God's perfect love and compassion. Only God is identified as having the deep compassion that this Samaritan had. The fuller meaning of this story then, and the good news for us, is that Jesus is the good Samaritan. He is the despised and rejected foreigner who became our neighbor, the one who took pity on us. Our road from Jerusalem to Jericho in this life is often rough, filled with danger and temptation that robs us of joy, and it always ends the same way, in death. But it's then that Jesus is our good shepherd Sam, our good neighbor to the rescue. He took on flesh and blood to become one of us. He faced the, the robber, the gang of sin, death, and, and devil. And he won that victory. That gang struck him down on a cross, so Jesus knows death because he is death's victor, rising from the dead, in order that he might carry us through that dark valley to the other side. Jesus, then, is the answer to the first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He kept the law of love perfectly for us, and now he gives us eternal life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. When we suffer then, and it seems like we're alone in life, there is a neighbor who is with us. He knows what suffering is. When we tremble beneath a sense of guilt, which nobody knows about, and if they did, even our friends would desert us. And then they, here too, Jesus is the neighbor who isn't shocked. He's already died to forgive that, that unspeakable sin. Throughout the uncertainties of life, like a good neighbor, Jesus is there. That's the good news that enables us to go and do likewise. Now it becomes a delight to serve the least of Jesus' brothers, knowing it is him that we are serving. Indeed, now... You see, the tables are turned. When we help, feed, clothe, visit the least of Jesus' brothers, we're doing it for him. The one who was our greatest neighbor now becomes the one to whom we are neighbor. Savior neighbor Jesus becomes needy neighbor Jesus. And who could refuse such a neighbor? The Apostle John writes, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. After all, the Good Samaritan would say, that's what neighbors are for. Go forth then, good neighbor, and live in that love. And the peace of Christ be with you. Amen.